0: Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a congregation of Torah initiative. Today, we are studying the 11th Perekh of Sefer Melachim. It is, of course, a complete coincidence, but it's certainly helpful for memorization to note that Shlomo's sin takes place in chapter 11, bankruptcy. Uh, The same is true for David, whose sin with Bathsheba and Uriah is also chapter 11 of Shmuel Bet. These are prakim of of spiritual bankruptcy and certainly very helpful coordinates to keep in mind, as these are both very important prakim in terms of the structure of the narrative. We have kind of pre-sin and post-sin. So it's good to remember chapter 11 is when things tend to go south for Shlomo and for David. Our parak opens by telling us that Shlomo is married to 700 wives, 300 concubines, many of whom are from foreign nations that, we are, uh, that the Torah explicitly prohibits for marriage. And as a result, Shlomo grows, when, when Shlomo grows old, his wives negatively influence him, and they cause him to sin and to, to build altars to foreign gods. So it seems from from a plain sense level of the text that Shlomo is Ovid Avod He engages in foreign worship. According to the Gemara, it could be that Shlomo simply allowed his wives to build these altars and to serve their foreign gods. But the text, uh, of course, imputes the guilt to Shlomo. So no matter how you slice it, it's obviously a very egregious sin uh, for the man who builds the Beis Mikdash to now uh, have this on his record as well. In our Nach B'Iyonshir, we dealt at length with the question of how could Shlomo, uh, the, the wisest man to ever live, uh, who loved Hashem, uh, who authors Shir Hashirim, how could he come to, uh, to to fall to this extent? And in that Shir, we developed, uh, among other things, uh, a theme that emerges from the Midrashim that basically, they, they note that on the day that Shlomo inaugurated the Beis HaMikdash, she also married Basparo. That's how they, they put these two things together, Uh which expresses the fact, it emphasizes the way in which Shlomo was really being pulled by these two objects of his desire or love. On the one hand, he truly loved Hashem. He was truly invested in building Hashem a suitable home, a suitable base on Mekdash. That was one kind of love. At the very same time, he was very taken by Basparo, uh, both specifically Basparo and symbolically, he was taken by foreign women who pulled him away from God ultimately. So it's. It's a, a very deep-seated conflict in, in within Shlomo, and it's expressed by the fact that the very first thing that, the, that Shlomo does as king, or at least the very first thing that is recorded in the text, uh, is uh, that he marries Basparo. That's the very first thing he does in the third parak. In the previous parak, he was rising to power, so you could say the first thing he does is pardon his brother. But essentially, the first thing that he does as king, after he has secured his power. Is to marry Basparo. So it's very telling that that kind of has a certain pride of place, and Shlomo's kind of always being pushed and pulled between his love for Hashem on the one hand and his desire for for foreign women. And ultimately, as he gets older, it is the latter which prevails and uh, and leads him astray. That was a theme that uh, uh, an approach that I developed in the Nach B'inj here at some length. Right now, I'd actually want to go a step further. I think we can. View Shlomo's sin in a much more profound way uh, beyond just a purely hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. Why did Shlomo marry Basparo? Why did he marry all of these foreign women? Were there not enough women among B'nai Israel to satisfy Shlomo's desires? It's clear that the marriage to Basparo and all of these foreign women were political in nature. That's why he married them they were really a cornerstone of Shlomo's foreign policy. And it demonstrated the extent to which Shlomo tried to maintain deep connections with foreign kingdoms. Shlomo was, was reaching outward, extending a hand far and wide. It's the same sense of universalism and outward reaching that is built into the structure and, and also the mission statement, as expressed in Shlomo's tefillah at the inauguration of the Base Hamikdash <coughs> for the Base Hamikdash, right? It's that it's a place for all nations to come and to, and to and it's a vehicle for all nations to reach out to Hashem. The Beis Hamikdash, as I keep saying, is this kind of international hub, this place where everyone will come and, uh, and in that way it will serve as this tremendous uh, Kiddush Hashem. Um, and so Shlomo's vision is very broad. It's international. It's global. He was always looking to connect with other nations and to bring them in. And that's why that same idea, which is expressed very beautifully in the Besamekdash, is also expressed perhaps more dangerously, though, in the form of all of his wives. Shlomo wanted to have a very far international reach. He wanted to impact the entire world. It was a kind of spiritual empire. But ultimately, Shlomo reaches too far. He opens the gate too wide. He reaches to too many places, and as a result, instead of influencing the world, ultimately he himself becomes influenced by the world, and he ends up adopting uh, their uh, their belief systems, and and by by uh, either adopting their belief systems or simply tolerating the their 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 belief systems and their foreign worship, uh, that was ultimately his undoing. I think this is a much more satisfactory explanation for for Shlomo's sin because it follows so clearly from his success. From his ideal vision for the Beit Hamikdash and for him, for his kingdom, uh, it was it was uh, uh, it worked, and it was this incredibly unique era of of Jewish history. But ultimately, he takes the vision too far, and he ends up being taken by it in a certain sense. Hashem then tells Shlomo uh, through a navi that uh, he is going to tear away the kingship uh, from Shlomo using that same language that we are familiar uh, with from Shmuel's pronouncement to Sha'ul. But we are also told that Shlomo's punishment will be mitigated because Hashem had made a promise to David that his kingship would, uh, would... would last, would uh, would stand the test of time. It would have a different fate than that of Shaul's, which was abruptly brought to an end. Um, and so Shlomo is spared in two ways. Firstly, the kingship will not depart uh, from him in his lifetime. And when it's taken from his heirs, it will not be taken entirely. Only the majority will be taken away. So two different ways in which it's mitigated. Shlomo doesn't lose the kingship in his lifetime, and even from his heirs, it is it, it will remain, but only partially. A minority will remain in the hands of his heirs. After the prophecy, we learn that a number of foes rise up against Shlomo, we have Hadad from Edom and Rizon from Tsova, from Syria. Neither of these men and their rebellions pose existential threats to Shlomo and to the nation, but they do disturb the peaceful and seemingly perfect regional hegemony that Shlomo had uh, established up until this point, and that, as we spent quite some time discussing, was really crucial to the building of the Beis HaMikdash. And then after a brief treatment of both of these men, we, we, uh, we, we meet Yeravam ben Nevat. Uh, the man who will ultimately lead the rebellion against the Davidic dynasty against Shlomo's heir, uh, and will cut the nation in two. Our parak gives a, a somewhat confusing picture of how events unfold with Yeravam. It's a little bit of a, a strange telling of the story, seemingly achronologically and, and kind of vague in in many ways. Uh, but I'll put the story. I'll put the narrative together based on various Mepharshim as follows. Yeravim is this kind of rags-to-riches story. is this very humble beginning. His mother is a widow. Uh, and he rises up to become Shlomo's tax collector uh, for Ephraim and Menashe for that region, which we know from earlier on was very heavily taxed in particular. It was a very heavily taxed region. Uh, after rising to power, he objects to Shlomo's use of, uh, of taxes, of national funds to build Milo, which was some kind of fortress in Yerushalayim. Take a look at Rabbi Alex Israel's book for a great treatment of that topic. Um, and this Milo was also used to house Basparo. And so for a variety of reasons, Yeravim felt that this was a misuse of communal funds and he uh, foments uh, uh, some sort of rebellion or uh, uh, or some sort of uh, sense of resentment Again, Shlomo. As a result, Shlomo chases him out of the land of uh, of Israel. He runs to Egypt, where he stays until Shlomo's death. There's just one very important element which I've glossed over in my retelling of the parak. Is that at some point, either it's before Yeruvim begins his rebellion, or perhaps after he has already begun his rebellion. At some point, he is approached by a navi by Achia, who tells him that he is supposed to lead a rebellion against Shlomo uh, and against Shlomo's heir, and that he will be the leader of the ten tribes or ten of the tribes of Israel. It's a prophetic message that is accompanied by uh, the Navi, by Echiyah, Tearing a new garment into twelve pieces—an act that is very reminiscent, once again, of uh, Shaul tearing Shmuel's garment when the kingship was, was torn away from Shaul—and uh, it's it's just it's such an important moment uh, to recognize that uh, that a, a navi told Yeravam uh, to lead uh, the 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 ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, uh, because as evil as Yeravam will prove to be, his rebellion has divine sanction. There's a difference between divinely guided and divinely sanctioned. Take, for example, Avshalom. When Avshalom rebels against David, Hashem had told David that there would be a rebellion. So Hashem uh, did kind of uh, guide this rebellion against David to a certain degree, but Hashem didn't sanction Avshalom's rebellion. Hashem didn't tell Avshalom that he should rebel against David. He just simply took advantage of what he perceived to be a vacuum of power. But ultimately, what he did was judged to have been wrong, despite the fact that Hashem foresaw and, and, and a prophet told David that it was going to happen. When it comes to Yeravim, not only is he fulfilling the words of Hashem to Shlomo that someone is going to rebel, but he's doing so based on Hashem's command through Anavi. This places him in a very different standing than the, uh, than the, than the coup that was led by Shalom. Uh, it gives him much more legitimacy. And I think that that's a very important distinction, uh, which we uh, should not fail to uh, remember as we continue through the chapters ahead, looking at Yeravim's very complex, very fraught life and career. That's it for today. Chazak vematz and happy learning.